Well, good morning, everybody. Isn't it great to wake up in the morning and have it be almost 50s in the 50s degree? Can you feel it? That fall is coming. It's almost here. It's a little reward for us as we have endured the summer. And there are just certain things that you do in the fall that you can't do and you don't do in the rhythm of the year. And so you get into the fall and certain things happen like college football. That doesn't happen in the summer. That happens in the fall. You, you drive down and you see the maples starting to explode with colors of red already. And you're like, it is time for fall. And you probably have things on your calendar and kind of the rhythm of the year that when it gets to fall, you're like, oh, yeah, I got to do that. Like, oh, yeah, I got to get ready to pay property taxes. Or, oh, yeah, I... For, for me, when I get to September, one of the things that I do is I check my calendar to make sure that I have scheduled, because I want that, I'm German and I'm Scottish and I'm cheap, uh, I want that discount on my health insurance, I'm like, I have to make sure that I've got that annual physical lined up. And I'm sure you look forward to that thing as much as I do. The annual physical is a beautiful annual thing that God makes us to, uh, to suffer through. And so we get to the fall, and we do that, and if your medical experience is anything like mine, you, you show up and you have to fill out the same paperwork as if you've never been there before, even though if you've been going to the same doctor for forever, and there's all of these little check in the box. Do you have this? No. 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 And I never know how to feel in those moments. Like, am I supposed to feel relief that's like, hey, I don't have that, and I don't have that, and I'm doing pretty well, or am I supposed to be afraid of like, Dear heavens, look at all the ways that the wheels can fall off of this thing. You just don't know. But you, you, you go through that list. You check all those boxes. And so they have that little kind of medical, like, fill-in-the-blank thing. And then, and then maybe your medical experience is the same as mine in the sense of you go through it and you get to the point where they do the emotional health screening. D does your doctor do this for you or is this just pastors? Because get to that emotional health screening, and the, usually the technician, the medical assistant, the nurse, whoever's doing this, doesn't even look up from the computer while she's asking the question, do you feel stressed? Yes. Do you feel anxious? Yes. Do you worry? Yes. Do you feel overwhelmed? Yes. And all of a sudden, she looks up, and I'm like, does anybody ever say no to those questions? And she's like, yes. And I said, they're lying to you. Because who among us doesn't feel worried, anxious, stressed, and most of all, overwhelmed? Can you relate to this cat who has just had a bath in the sink? Or can you relate to this young girl who's clearly in preschool, she's got a box of Crayolas, how stressful can it be? And she looks like she's about to have a breakdown in preschool because that picture is so stressful to draw. Most of the time when we are going about our business, our brains are flying around that things are kind of coming into them and bouncing around inside them. And we feel like this word overwhelmed is one of the more prevalent emotions that I think that we feel today. That we're just below the surface and we just can't get to the top of it. And so the important theological question that I want to ask this morning is, did Jesus feel overwhelmed? And if your reaction would be anything like my first instincts would be, of course not. Like he's the son of God. He's the living manifestation of God's presence in the world. Jesus is, not, Jesus is in charge. He, he's, he's not overwhelmed. 
And if that's what your reaction would be like mine, you and I would be wrong. Because in the very heart of today's passage is a verse that very clearly explains, in fact, even say this with me, say it in unison, Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So if you're walking around with your theological imagination of who God is, and you're like, Jesus was never overwhelmed, you would be wrong. And the question is, wait, what? He's overwhelmed? How? Why? What's, what's going on here? Let's see if we can discover that together. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've had Bibles provided for you to be able to use. And uh, so I hope that you will grab one, open to Mark chapter 14. While you're doing that, we're in the midst of a series that's called Quest. And in this series, we are walking through the whole story of God together. We did the Old Testament in January through July. When we got to August, we started looking at the New Testament. We started by looking at the ministry of Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, his stories, his healings. And then in the month of September, we're looking at Jesus as Messiah. Messiah is just a fancy word that means anointed. Jesus anointed as king. Jesus anointed as the priest. Jesus anointed as the prophet. And so as we look at this, Jesus is making his way towards the cross. And I've told you that as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that we have been doing is that we've noticed that Mark is trying, there's a question behind just reading this book. There's a reason why he's writing it. And the question that's behind it is, hey, who's in charge here? Is Caesar in charge? Is the government in charge? Is the... Um, is the religious establishment in charge? Are, are we in charge and we're messing this up? Like, what's going on in the world and who's, who's in charge of this? And we've noticed how Jesus is an authority figure and that throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus demonstrates authority over sin, authority over creation and nature, authority over evil and the dark spiritual forces that would threaten to imprison us, authority over the temple. And so, don't miss the fact that as we get to this verse and this story in this verse, it's like, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. Newsflash, Jesus is overwhelmed. And so this is a significant pivot. But there's a significant reason why. If you will, look at with me Mark chapter 14. Just starting at the first verse, I want to scan some things so you can see in context before we look at the actual passage itself. Mark chapter 14 in the first 14 verses is the story of Jesus being anointed by oil at Bethany, which is a suburb of Jerusalem, the poor district of Jerusalem. And in that poor district, there is a woman who is there who takes an, not just any oil. It's an expensive oil perfume that the text tells us is made from pure nard, which comes from a Himalayan plant. There was an elaborate trade route in that world, and this special perfume was not the kind of perfume of like, hey, let's go out to a nice place for dinner tonight. You would reserve this perfume for one occasion and one occasion only. The most expensive thing you owned and the most expensive gift that you ever made was when you anointed the body of one who had died whom you loved. 
And this woman does that to Jesus. The symbolism, Jesus is on his way to die and it will be a gift. Then in starting in verse 12, you see what in my heading in the NIV is the Last Supper. This is the Passover rite. Jesus is completing the Exodus story. You might recall the angel of death goes over the houses of the Israelites because the blood of the lamb is on the doorframe. There was a sacrifice that spared their life. And so we see at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to die, but it's no ordinary death. It is going to be a sacrificial death so that we might be liberated, that we might be free. And that is all important backstory to where we get now, starting in verse 25. Sorry, verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered today, yes, tonight before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the disciples said the same. And they went to a place called what? Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, which is something that's happening to some of you right now in this sanctuary. And they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You need to understand that Jesus' death and his approach towards death was completely unprecedented in its moment and in its time. There were huge forces that were shaping the way that they viewed their culture and their imagination at the time, and one of the forces was that of the Greco-Roman Empire. And the emphasis of Greek and Greek philosophy and Stoicism said that the, the most heroic way to die is with a distanced, dispassionate kind of spirit. The, the, the spirit of that age can be depicted by Socrates, facing his death as if it doesn't really matter at all. Or the other way that you could be a hero in the ancient world is that you could be a hero in the ancient world with kind of the, the Roman zealot Jewish tradition. 
And in this system, it was a great hero is like a gladiator. It is someone who fights. It is a militant figure. So you can have a noble death. You can have a great death as long as you are willing to lay down your life by taking up arms in order to battle some sort of injustice. And yet when you look at the person of Jesus, he doesn't die in either one of these two ways, does he? I wrote this down because I wanted to get this language just precise and right. Jesus is neither calm philosopher nor passionate martyr. He's not a hero. He's not a stoic. He is in agony. He falls to the ground on his face. Remove the cup, he begs. It's not death that Jesus is afraid of. It's not pain. It's not thirst. It's not ridicule that Jesus is seeking to avoid. It is this thing, this image, the cup. The cup is the symbol of God's wrath poured out on the nations, the container of his anger over our sin, his quest for the justice to be accomplished. The cup is mentioned in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk and in other of the prophets and other places. And what Jesus is about to lose is the one thing that Jesus cannot fathom living without. All of his life, all of eternity, Jesus has known perfect union, perfect friendship, perfect relationship with his heavenly father. And in the cross, Jesus will cry out, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Taking our sin, our shame on himself, Jesus is forsaken by the Father in that moment for God turns his back on the Son and he does this out of his holiness and he does this for you and me. And so horrified and distressed and overwhelmed, Jesus asks his Abba, his Papa, Is there any other way? But on this night, there will be no heaven's opening. On this night, there will be no dove descending from on high. On this night, there will be no voice that says, behold, my beloved son. On this night, there will only be anguished waiting and faithful surrender. On this night, there will only be the phrase, not my will, but thy will be done. Do you see why Jesus was overwhelmed? It is so difficult for us to read our Bibles today. I say this to you to be a comfort that if you are going on this journey with you, with us and you are reading your Bible and you are doing the digging, it's, I hear some of the feedback loop. I'm doing the digging. I just, I, I don't read it like you do. I don't see these things. My friends, it takes years of study, our context is so far removed from first century Palestine and Judaism that it's so hard for us to to get in the right frame of mind. But if you do just enough history, if you do just enough exploration, you will see things you have never seen before and the light bulb will go off. I want to give you one example of how this passage is something that I have read and preached on for years and I have seen something this week that I have never ever seen before. This story takes place, tells us in the Mount of what? The Mount of Olives. And within the Mount of Olives, which is a grove of olive trees, 
the story takes place in a particular section of the Mount of Olives, which is a garden. And the Bible defines the garden as, and labels it as the garden of what? Gethsemane, which means olive press. What I learned this year was that if you go and you look at the Midrash, which is the ancient rabbinical commentary of the oral tradition of the rabbis throughout the centuries, some of which go back all the way to the first century, this, this writing tells us a little bit about the Mount of Olives. And the story goes all the way back to Noah. You'll probably recall in the Noah story that the sinfulness of the world is so bad that God has to do a hard reset on the world in order to try to give creation a shot. And so Noah and his family, based out of the righteousness of God, gather all of the animals because God's not going to destroy all of creation. God is rescuing creation. And Noah and his family gather them together and they get in the ark and the world becomes flooded. And there's that moment where they are there's no land to be seen anywhere. There's no hope. The storm is over, but how will the waters ever go away? How will they ever subside? And they send out a dove, and they don't get anything, and then they send out a second dove, and the dove comes back with what? An olive branch. According to the tradition of the rabbis, they took that branch of the olive because one of the things you need to know about olive trees is you can't really kill an olive tree. They don't really die. Just a new shoot will come out, out of a root or out of the side, and if you plant that, it will grow. And so what happens, according to the rabbi tradition, is that once they got off of the ark, they planted that olive tree, and then they took a branch of that olive tree as God's people moved throughout the years, and that when they got to the land that is Jerusalem and the east side of the hill that's next to it, they planted and continued to plant olive trees, which by the time you got to Jesus was the Mount of Olives, all that originally came from the shoot of Noah's Ark. There is a church that is commemorating what happens here in this place. This is the church was called of all nations and in this place, uh, it was empty, which was stunning in March when we were there. When we went in there, you can see these mosaics that portray at the very front uh, Jesus in the garden. The windows on the side um, are meant to be symbolic of the tears of Jesus streaming down his face. And at the very front of this church is a piece of the original rock and limestone with, you can see, the thorns going around it. This is the rock by tradition that for over 1,500 years, people have come and knelt and prayed at this place that is the traditional site where they believe that Jesus prayed in the garden when he asked for God's will to be done in his life. Even to this day, surrounding this church, if you were to go outside, is a grove of, you guessed it, olive trees some of which are really old, like these in this particular section, where it almost looks like you have a dead tree and there's a new tree growing out of it. Because one of the primary symbols of new life and of resurrection and new creation was that of the olive tree. 
Now, according to the historian Josephus, uh, most of the trees were torn down when the temple was destroyed and burned. But what we learn is that you can't really kill an olive tree. If there's any little tiny shoot, if there's any little health of a root, a new shoot will grow. And so in the Mount of Olives, in the middle of a garden that's called Gethsemane, God is renewing creation once again, even though it is evil and needs to be destroyed. And the way that that is happening in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is symbolic of this image right here, Gethsemane means oil press. This is what an oil press looked like because once you took the initial juice of an olive, what you would do is you would put it in the olive press and you would crush it. Do you see the symbolism? That at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is on his way to die. That is very clear. In the second part of chapter 14, that it is the Passover supper and that Jesus is completing the Exodus story in God being a sacrifice for his people. And in the third part of this story, God is renewing all of creation, going all the way back to the story of Noah, And the way that that is going to happen is that Jesus is going to be crushed for us. Hearkening back to the words of Isaiah, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering and we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was what? Crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us Peace, shalom, the symbol of the olive tree branch and of the dove. The peace, the shalom, the renewal that is brought to us came about his punishment and by his wounds we are healed. And so Jesus was overwhelmed. Not by too much on his to-do list. Because the only way to get new creation was for him to be crushed. Because the only way for us to be freed was for him to be the Paschal Passover lamb. And the only way for this to happen was that he was gonna march to his death. Now, a mistake that we can make is we read a passage like this and say, thank you, pastor. I appreciate you explaining to me this. I understand it now, I'm grateful. That's not the invitation. The invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples is the same invitation that gives to us as we enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. The invitation that Jesus gives us is not that we would acknowledge God or that we would understand God or that we would say, yeah, we think that about God. The invitation, going all the way back to the time of Genesis, is that we could become a friend of God because of what he has done and is doing. And we get a portrait of what a friend looks like in the Garden of Gethsemane. That when Jesus was in his hour of need, he tells three things. He says, stay, watch, 
and pray. The job description of a friend of God, to stay, to watch, to pray. We're called to stay, we're called to be present, we're called to put our feet down and our roots down, to remain, to abide, to dwell in the same way that God has come to stay with us. I remember when, a, when I was in high school and I was in a tiny little youth group from our Presbyterian church and that there was a guy in our youth group who was a year older than I was and he was in a tragic auto accident and they pulled me and a couple of the other people from that Presbyterian church out of class and told us what had happened. And it was a bright, sunny day in Central Texas. And I remember sitting, I can still picture it in my mind's eye, I am sitting on a picnic table. And some people over the course of time, as we're bawling our eyes out, some people came over and said some things and I don't even remember what they said. And some other people came over and said some things and I remember what they said. And they needed to be quiet with their platitudes. But what I remember most is that there was one person who was not from our youth group who didn't say anything at all. This person just sat on the picnic table while we cried and stayed. I don't know what your situation is right now, but our tendency to flee is great. And a good friend puts down their roots and stays. We stay, secondly, we watch, we pay attention. We've got our eyes open. When our kids were young, they were born not that far apart. So there was this period of time where we never slept and Kelly slept less than I did. And there was this one night where I said that, hey honey, don't worry, when, when a child wakes up today, tonight, I'll, I'll get it. And she's like, okay. So we put the baby monitor on my side of the bed and turned the volume up all the way. And uh, sure enough, in the middle of the night, the baby starts crying and uh, Kelly reports that I sat straight up and said, don't worry, I got it, I'm on it. faced back into the pillow and don't move. I have no recollection of that moment, but I have been paying for that moment ever since. Because <laughs> apparently the baby was going off like a siren and Kelly had to get up out of bed. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is it not? It's not about our intentions, it's about paying attention. We stay we watch, and most of all, we pray. It's what friends do, friends in God. True story of a couple who were displaced during World War II. They, uh, the husband was a theological professor, and they found their way to a different school and a new community, trying to outweigh the war. While they were teaching and living there, Enid, the woman, died, and the husband, Hans, was devastated. He stopped eating, he stopped drinking, he stopped exercising, he stopped teaching, and the seminary president sat down with Hans and said, is there anything that I or we can do? And Hans shrugged his shoulders and said, I, 
I can't even pray anymore. To which the seminary president said, that's okay. We'll pray for you. You don't have to, we will. And every day for a period of time, the president of the seminary and four other people gathered at the set time every day and they gathered to pray for Hans. And the days and the weeks and the months passed as they prayed for him and one day Hans walked into their little fellowship of prayer and he said, I no longer ask you to pray for me. Now I ask you to pray with me. Because their prayers had restored his heart. You and I are called to be friends of God. And yet we have a tendency to run when we ought to stay. We have a tendency to fall asleep when we ought to keep watch. And we have a tendency to busy ourselves and distract ourselves rather than pray. And yet what our world needs, what our community needs, what our families need, what our neighborhoods need, are friends of God who are willing to stay and to watch and to pray, and to stay and to watch and to pray. And you might ask yourself the simple question, why don't we do it? The simple answer is this from Tim Keller, often what seems to be our deepest desires are really just our loudest desires. What do you really want? Not my will, but thine be done. Really easy to say. But is it what your will really is? And has it surrendered to the Father? I don't mean surrender to your circumstances. I don't mean for you to become a distant, dispassionate observer of your life and death. I mean, do you understand that God as he makes his way towards the cross, is renewing the family of God and the freedom of the Passover, and that God is renewing all of creation and the completion of the Noah story as he brings that to full circle. And that the means by which God will continue to do that through his resurrection power is through the gift of friendship. And so I know you probably go to your annual physical exam and I know that you may get those emotional health questions. My question for you is, how's your spiritual health? Stay, watch, pray. And so let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality that even when we're overwhelmed, you can empathize with us that you took on our brokenness and our sinfulness so that we might be restored. And as we lift up our voices and we, we offer our souls to you in this moment in this sanctuary, we can rely on the fact that you, you know how we feel, that we just can't get our heads above the water. And so God, will you, in the midst of 
our feelings of being overwhelmed ground us, root us, and help us to get back to the basics of what it means to be a friend of you and to the people around us. And so we thank you for the sacrifice that you were willing to pay and the fact that you were crushed so that all of creation can be renewed. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.